comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 45. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This week's episode, we have a talk with the creator of the Internet's number one black exploitation webcomic. His name is Jay Potts, and the webcomic is called World of Hurt. You can find it at worldofhurtonline.com. It's a fantastic webcomic. Uh, Jay and I have a wonderful conversation. We talk about his webcomic, we talk about the black exploitation era, music, film, everything. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. I cannot wait for you all to listen to this. And after that conversation, Donnie Salvo returns to the show as he and I talk about some trades and original graphic novels that we read from a while back. So I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Also, I would like to uh, welcome, once again, new listeners to the PKD Black Box that are they're able to pull the episodes from the hhwlod.com website. Thank you for listening to the PKD Black Box and its a plethora of podcasts such as Tales from the Attic and the Carol Chronicles. If any of you new listeners have any thoughts on the show, uh, the podcast, the slew of podcasts that we have, feel free to drop us a line at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. We would, we would really appreciate it. It would mean a lot to us. And even our current listeners, um, if you'd like to send us an email, send us an email to blackbox at pkdmedia.com. We'd like to hear what you think about the show. And last but not least, uh, the Kickstarter fundraiser for Action Lab Entertainment Presents Fracture is all said and done. We were able to raise $4,088 due to you, the listeners and fans of Action Lab and fans of comics and art in general. And as the president of Action Lab Entertainment, I want to personally thank each and every one of you for your donations to the project. And we will start to work on sending out those rewards soon. Uh, We're just waiting to receive said monies. And then we'll start uh, printing out these books, getting these buttons ready and all the other special trinkets and goodies that we promised you as well. So we will get that underway very soon. So thank you again to all everyone who supported us along the way. And we promise not to let you down. But now on with the show. I am joined on the line right now by the creator of the Internet's number one black exploitation webcomic, World of Hurt. And for those that don't know what World of Hurt is about, if you go to worldofhurtonline.com, you can get hip to one of the most fantastic webcomics I've read in a very long time. Um, it takes place in the, early, in the early 70s, and the place is Point Blanc, a coastal city in central California, named for the white cliffs and beaches that dot the northern peninsula of this bustling port city. The Duraville District, its toughest neighborhood, rests across the harbor from Point Blanc's downtown financial heart, connected by the Lafayette Bridge. However, the racial and economic divide between the two metropolitan areas is much larger and virtually impossible to cross. 
and you can read the adventures of Isaiah Pastor Hurt, a tough and mysterious, stylish and streetwise fixer at worldofhurtonline.com, suggested for mature readers. And on the line, we have the creator of this fantastic webcomic, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jay Potts. Jay, how you doing, sir? I'm all right. How about you? Doing, doing great, doing great. I had to make sure I read that, that excerpt before we got into it because people need to know about World of Hurt. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I have to, uh, have to kind of uh, fix the blurb a bit, or at least the, uh, uh, some of the information on there, because uh, some of it relates to the, the, uh, the previous uh, storyline, The Thrill Seekers, which mm -hmm. uh, ran, uh, finished up this summer. And uh, so I have to do it. Reading that reminds me that I have to do a new uh, about uh, uh, page for the, the current storyline of Black Fist. Oh, excellent, excellent. We'll see. That's, that's how we just, we just work it out. I, sometimes I'll just go and I'll just like start spewing, and lo and behold, see, magic is made. So there you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe remember I had to do a little housekeeping. <laughs> and that's all right. That is all right. Now, for those that like don't know about World of Hurt, you know, I, even though I gave a description of the Thrill Seekers, um, would you like to elaborate on uh, what World of Hurt is all about? Uh, World of Hurt is, um, I, I, this, this phrase is used a lot <clears throat> um, in regards to other subjects, but it's a bit of a, a love letter to the black exploitation and black action movies of the 1970s. And um, I took a character who's uh, built on the template of, of uh, Mr. T. Troubleman, um, Shaft, um, Superfly, that, or, or those kind of characters, and I, I put them, kind of rolled them all together in a character called Isaiah Pastor Hurt, uh, hence the name of the, the strip World of Hurt, and uh, I built a world around him that kind of um, uh, used all those elements of those uh, those, those movies because um, uh, some took place in in uh, New York, some Los Angeles, um, the Mac took place in the Oakland, San Francisco area, and I, I kind of created uh, created Point Blanc. And it's in the environment is kind of based around this, but it's mostly based on um, uh, the, the Oakland, San Francisco area. When doing this comic, from like from what I've read from the Thrill Seeker storyline, and for those that are just um, reading the comic for the first time, the art itself is like very breathtaking. It's very striking. It's you know it's dynamic and descriptive. Uh, to a point where even if you didn't read the, the actual um, the, the word bubbles in between the panels, you would still be able to know what's going on. And oh, oh no, you're welcome. It's, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to look at. And I get this vibe of the uh, Marvel comic magazines from the 70s and how like their black and white magazines, which a lot of it was also suggested for mature readers material, very artistic, very elaborate. You know, there's a lot of storytelling that was allowed in those books as opposed to the standard comic book that was like on a, on a uh, wire rack um, in a convenience right. store. What were your influences? I mean, besides like the influence of black exploitation cinema, um, what were your artistic influences to get World of Hurt together? Primary influences are uh, David Mazzucchelli's work from um, Batman Year One and Daredevil Born Again. Uh, for a while, I it was, it seems like I was looking at those every day, and then and I noticed later on that um, that people kind of see a Gene Colan influence in my work, but it actually seemed to come more from uh, studying the, the David what David Mazzucchelli was doing around that time. Because mm -hmm. there's definitely, uh, particularly in the earlier episode uh, issues of uh, from Born Again. And uh, even before that, when he was doing Daredevil, you saw a lot of the, the Gene Coleman influence there. So, so that really came in. Um, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is one of my favorite artists of all yes. time. And then uh, more recently, I decided what sort of 
format I was going to, to do as, as a, doing as a, as a comic strip, um, I really started to study the work of uh, Al Williamson, who I loved a long time ago. Alex Raymond with his Rip Kirby. I knew I was familiar with his, uh, his Flash Gordon, but once I saw Rip Kirby, I was like, oh, that's it. That's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and of course, Peter McDonald and um, Jim Holdaway in, in Modesty Blaze. I just love I just love what they do. And uh, what a, what a mature, but not in a not in a sort of lurid sense, but mature stories that they were able to tell mm-hmm. with very uh, complex characters who um, had a, had a, who had this platonic relationship that was very adult and uh, handled very maturely and handled very very tastefully and very cleverly. I just love the the, the storytelling that they were able to do with that. Uh, for, since I was a kid. I seem to follow artists more than than uh, the particular characters, mm-hmm. so I would uh, so I would, I would always try to whenever an artist would leave a book, I would drop it right away and mm-hmm. go to whatever they were doing next. So I've I've always enjoyed the art more than more than the writing, but the storytelling part. But I definitely thank you for uh, for for bringing that up um, and and, the no- and noticing the work because I really try to pay attention to the storytelling that goes on in in, in the in the in the uh, strip. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that that that's able to come across, and uh, for it to be kind of, I guess, legible isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but for it to be understandable, even without the having having the words to, to propel it along, I think is, is is a real compliment. So thank you. Anytime I can look at a comic and it automatically like takes me to like a period of time where like I'm say for instance um, I've said this on the show a few times like I'll start reading a book and it will remind me of a time where I was reading a comic at my grandma's house or watching cartoons somewhere or just doing something somewhere else at that time if I if it can give me that feeling that to me that's good and that's what I get when like I read World of Hurt when I read World of Hurt it takes me to the time where my uncles had those Marvel magazines and I would like sneak into the basement while they weren't home and like pull them out the box because I wasn't you know they didn't, they didn't let me read them and I would like you know sort of Conan like kind of thing. yes 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 yeah. oh yes indeed and um it, t- it took me back to those times where like I would just go downstairs sneak and like read them as quickly as possible you know and put them back before they got back home and you know, it, it takes me back to those days. It's just you get you know, you get excitement, adventure, solid dialogue in each strip. You know, you're working with a set space. You know, you're working with a, you know a set like widescreen pan- panoramic space, and you're able to get like a few panels in, and you're able to tell just a fluid story because there are like a lot of web comics or comics that are split up into sections to make them web comics where things don't maintain a cohesiveness and it ends up hurting the story unless they read it like in a trade paperback or in paper form. Whereas with your comic, it's different. It's this constant fluidity from beginning to end. And that definitely, you know, makes your comic solid. Thank you. Thank you. Well, one of the things I've, I've, that well, definitely was what I tried to focus on, I've, I've said it, mentioned it before, that um, Peter McDonald, uh, just looking at what he did with Modesty Blaze, I think he, 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 he was masterful at that. And once I started World of Hurt, the initial sequence started with the pastor, uh, the character pastor chasing a junkie and trying to get information from him. And I initially planned like this, this long, drawn-out knife fight between the two. Mm-hmm. But uh, quick, I quickly realized, you know, this is a weekly strip. Uh, people are going to be sitting, be willing to sit around for for two months while I have a knife fight with a, with a junkie in an alley. <laughs> so I, I quickly scrapped that and realized that I did have to kind of pace the story differently and take into account that um, I was I would be testing people's patience because it, it was a weekly strip. It, is, it remains a weekly strip. 
So I tried to give them the most bang for their buck, and I kind of look at each panel, each panel um, as maybe a, a sentence in, in a paragraph. And I look at um, uh, each uh, the, the strip itself as a paragraph in a, in a story, or maybe even a page in a story. So I want to get people to get to the bottom of that page, so to speak, and give them enough reason to flip to the next one, or effectively wait for another week for the next one to come along. Mm-hmm. But it always have to, there has to be some sort of, not always a sort of action cliffhanger, but some sort of reason for people to want to stick around and find out what happens next. And it could be kind of end on a dramatic note where uh, a character reveals something or it could end on some sort of action sequence. So so those things I always try to remain cognizant of and think of because I'm, I'm really testing the reader, and the reader's doing me a big favor by sticking around right. and to, see, to see what's going to happen. So I have to definitely have to make it worth their while in one way or another. Um, it's not in color. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serial, long-form comic, so there's a lot in the, in the webcomic market that's actually kind of working against it. Everything that's, uh, that says, you know, it, it shouldn't have a whole lot of traffic. It, you know, people shouldn't be coming back for it to, to read it. There's just so much working against it, so I try to recognize those those perceived limitations of the long-form black-and-white comic mm-hmm. and, and work them to my advantage and to try to make it something worthwhile. And I give you a lot of credit for keeping it as a black-and-white comic. I know the stuff that's been over at PKD Media, those are black and white. And I've had people say, well, why don't you put those in color? I said, well, when we made these comics at the time, that's just how they were presented. I was like, we, you know, we put in, we put in grayscale at, at spots, but these were always supposed to be black and white comics. And there's nothing wrong with black and white comics. And, and it's just that I know we live in a world of color. And you know that, I know that we all know this. And and yes, you know, there's progression in everything we do, but with art, there's no stamp that says, this is what a comic is supposed to look like, this is how it's supposed to feel. And that's why, there's, to me, there's nothing wrong with a black and white comic. A black and white comic can be just as powerful as a color comic. You know, it's, it's all in the story that you're telling and whether that story appeals to you. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I, I also struggled with, um, one of my, my primary influences, as I mentioned before, was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. And he works, worked in, in color, uh, color comics, of course. And um, he had a much more open line. And, and that's why I emulated for years. I had this very open style. And in the earlier, ish, earlier strips, you can see that I was, I was moving, I was using that more. And uh, but and because it was in black and white, I really had to think of it in terms of mass and volume as opposed to as opposed to line. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's when I really started to look harder at uh, at uh, um, what uh, uh, Alex Raymond is doing and um, Hal Williamson in particular, um, because uh, what they're able to, to, to capture just in very stark blacks and whites and still make it illustrative as opposed to graphic mm-hmm. was definitely what I was going for. And I think in um, even recently it's like uh, two months ago i was looking at some of the older strips and i realized you know i gotta i gotta push this a little more so i started to think of like john paul leon and uh chris somni and an artist like that and see what they were doing now and then and, and try to um, get a little darker push the the blacks a little more um beef up the line work and, uh, and, and take in terms of that as opposed to 
just pure lying. And I think I've, I've gotten closer to, to what I want to do. So that's something I've, I've definitely been working on, definitely trying to push more and try to explore what's possible within black and white. Right. I, I think um, you're talking about artists like Chris Somney. Um, I also like think like artists like that and as well as artists like Gabriel Hartman, I think those are the gentlemen that also... I think if there are, whether it be just standard black or white or, you know, added with color, I think they're able to give you enough definition and enough and just enough art in itself that it once again tells a story on its on its own with proper line work and, and what have you. I think those artists definitely contribute to that. I, I remember as a kid, anytime I saw Jose uh, Luis Garcia Lopez artwork, I freaked out. And and to me, it was like one, to me, it was like one of the greatest things ever. And it's. And as a kid, didn't know what issues um, an artist did work on consistently. You know, it was like a lot of times it was just hunting and pecking because as a kid, there weren't a lot of comic stores in our neighborhood growing up. And as I got a little older, they started to pop up and then they disappeared again. But, you know, there were no comicbookdb.com websites. So I can't say, give me every appearance of a John Byrne comic. Give me an appearance of every Ron Wilson comic. Um, to, uh, you know, who's a very, to me, a very underrated artist. To this day, I still say he's done some, some of the most beautiful covers and interiors you know, that people, I think, sleep on. I just, I'm a big Ron Wilson fan. But there was nothing like that back then to say, find me all these books. You really had to hunt and peck and look. So anytime I had a relative, like, drop me off a comic and it would have, like, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez artwork, or I would see like on a T-shirt or something, I would like run home and like if I had the comic, I would try to like, you know, trace his line work and, you know, try to make it all work and try to, you know, try to mimic it. And I can, you know, never get close to it. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe drawing's not for me right now. It was something that like I just wanted to be able to attain so bad, so bad, because to me, his artwork is so powerful. Like with the uh, Wednesday's comics, he did a sh- he did a strip and it was a uh, Lopez artwork with Kevin Nolan inks. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? That didn't even need word bubbles. <laughs> didn't even need. Oh, cool. Did you read their Doctor Strange Fate from the uh, Amalgam line? Oh, uh, Doctor Strange Fate. I've yes. I've got two copies of it on purpose because I read the first one so much it's literally falling apart. Yes, yes. <laughs> I've, I've done that with his uh, with his Twilight and uh, his Cinder and Ash. Mm. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, you know his yeah. his artwork is something to, something to behold. It's like you know guys like him, uh, Mike Zek. Those were like art like real key artists for me growing up. Uh, you know, even ones that people couldn't stand. Like um, I had a lot of people that couldn't stand Luke McDonald, and Ooh. yeah, Luke McDonald was was like my artist on Iron Man. You, you know, I, I yeah. remember him from uh, from uh, from Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I don't remember him from. Uh my man I've been reading forever yeah and like that was that was my dude because like yeah I read the latent stuff but like I really started reading Iron Man when Rhodey was in the suit and McDonald was doing the artwork and and uh, and Tony was trying to build himself back up and some of the like stories that still stick to me to this day were the McDonald stories where they were written by Denny O'Neill with McDonald artwork, and that stuff still to this day like leaves a mark on me. When McDonald did the end of the uh, Justice League of America run before it became Justice League, that stuff meant a lot to me. And like with Suicide Squad, Suicide Squad to this day is still one of the most underrated and understated comics. People sleep on Ostrander, and people sleep on McDonald. And I just I love his stuff. I definitely agree with uh, with, with that. I mean, when I was when I was reading um, Suicide Squad, I didn't even connect him back to, to Iron Man. 
looking at more more to uh, the, the Justice League. Um, he just had there's this some sort of this this blocky muscular quality to his line work and to his work that, that really really appealed to me. And you know, you know, Jeff uh, was it Jeff Bishop came along later. I think so. I think so. Yes. Um, and, and, and I mean, the guy's like a classic artist. But for me, I was missing. I felt like I was missing a little something when when Luke left. Yeah, it's it, it's it's never it's never the same. It's like it's one thing like if if a, your favorite artist leaves and they bring in a big gun that you know that you that you know about. It's like okay, I, I can dig. But sometimes when it's an artist that you truly connect with, sometimes it doesn't matter who replaces that artist. It's just not the same. Going back to World of Hurt, I see with um, the main character, Isaiah Pastor Hurt, I see a lot of Fred Williamson, you know, as far as like looks and stuff like that go. Going back to black exploitation cinema, you talked about Shaft and other and other types of black exploitation movies as being um, part of the inspiration of creating World of Hurt. Were there like any uh, actors from the black exploitation era uh, that you saw in the creation of uh, Isaiah Pastor Hurt? Um, I've often said that. Uh, I was with with the pastor. I really wanted the, the smoothness and suaveness of Fred Williamson, and that uh, the physicality of, uh, of of James Brown. Yes. Uh, uh, Jim Brown. Right, Jim, uh, Jim, Jim, James Brown, not too bad either. <laughs> but, uh, well, I wanted that 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 strong sort of no nonsense quality about uh, that the Jim Brown had in his movies. But uh, and, and also my, my favorite uh, one of my favorites was uh, was Robert Hooks. Playing uh, Mr. T in Trouble Man, not the Mr. T people would think of. I mm-hmm. think that Mr. T actually probably got his name from the character that he played in Trouble Man, because he, he was a bit of a he was a fixer as well, kind of mysterious, and the guy just took nothing, didn't take anything off anybody. And it was very credible in doing it. There's this this sort of hardness in his eyes that said he had, he had lived through a lot and seen a lot. So I was really trying to to get a little bit of that uh, with the pastor. Excellent. Kind of a mysteriousness to him. Oh no, it, it definitely it definitely shows. You know, there's nothing I think there's there's a a big issue with like a lot of comics, whether it be web comics or just comic books nowadays, where a lot of your main characters or your stars of the book are very they're very nondescript. Uh, you know, they, they come they come across as generic and you know, and they'll surround that character with either gimmicks or or enough side characters or sidekicks that have some form of personality to make the lead character shine. Whereas with World of Hurt, Isaiah Pastor Hurt doesn't need that. His character stands enough on his on its own because one, because of his look, his demeanor, the way he shows up. When he's in the comic, you know he's in the comic and you know he's about to do something. I had a great uh, compliment uh, paid to me at uh, Atlanta, uh, Atlanta Comic-Con. That guy, I think his name was Stephen White. He came, he came up to me and said, you know, uh, it seems like every time I open the book, there's like some some horribly violent event going on. I said, <laughs> no, no, not, not really. Because when you think about it, there's actually a lot of talking and a lot of, uh, there's, there's a lot of build-up. But uh, it, was, it was a compliment to me because I think I, what I had done was created made those moments important mm-hmm. when something big happens or when a character walks on like like pastor when you know he, when he shows up you know something's going to happen yes and then that build up that anticipation to the event seems like it hits so hard and it makes it seem like man a lot's been going on to this but when actually there's a lot of talking because at one point there was a 
in the, the Thrill Seeker storyline, there's about a six-week uh, period where he wasn't even in the strip. And when I, he came back, uh, in the strip where he came back, um, I didn't show his face. I just showed, like, his feet. I showed him from the back. I showed him from the side. I showed his torso. But I didn't actually show him. And then the next time you see him in full, you know, see his face, it was this, this big event in, uh, it was episode, issue, uh, episode 16, where he's, he's got a gun right in uh, the village's face. And he's just he's just challenging, and uh, that that was just uh, the the build up to that. I think w- was really satisfying for me, and it was a huge payoff for the for the readers too. Like, wow, he's back, and you know he's back, and he, you know things are really gonna go bad from here on out. So, um, so I thought that was a that was a big compliment where I'm able to create the impression that uh, a lot more violent stuff is going on than, than is, is taking place. I think the current storyline there, there's. There seems to be a lot more action happening. There was buildup, but there's there's totally more action uh, going on going on with it right now. And I'm in, in the middle of a pretty big uh, uh, sequence that uh, started out with attempted assassination, mm-hmm. um, leads to a car chase, and uh, probably going to a fist fight as well. Oh, <laughs> fantastic! Now, one thing about this about this car chase for people that you know when, when they get to read this strip, you know, they, remember this is during the black exploitation era, so every car is the size of a boat. <laughs> And you know that's and that's one of the things. Once again, one of the things about the comic that I love is that when you get into this comic and when you get into reading it, it's set in a specific time period and it's very specific. It's time. It's time specific. I guess I want to. I, I want to use the word factual. It's in this era. These are the things that were going down in this era. These are the type of vehicles. These were the types of looks that we had. This is the type of uh, fashion we had. Imagery and everything. It's all there. There's no half stepping on it. It's 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 so legitimate, and that's what I love about it. Because a lot of people, when they do like you know period pieces and stuff like that, they'll they'll get a feel of that period, but they don't go all in. Thank you. The, the research is, is I've always loved doing the research for for whatever I'm, I'm doing, mm-hmm. and uh, this has just been a, a blast. Because yeah, you're right. Because the cut of a suit in the 1970s is so dramatically different than it was than it is today. Yes. Uh, Bad year today. Um, you have a more blocky, more more sagging silhouette in, uh, on uh, on men's clothing. Um, there, everything was kind of close and tailored and, and tight. The pant, the pant waist were higher, so I tried to capture all of those things. You know, I have tons of research. I have uh, uh, J.C. Penney catalogs and, uh, from 1972, uh, Sears catalogs from 72. I have uh, like 18 issues of uh, Ebony magazine from 72, 73, yes. 71, 72. And a bound edition of, of uh, Ebony from uh, November 1973 to April 1974. I just got a book which is fantastic. I, I just I lost my mind when I saw it. <laughs> um, it's uh, photographed by a uh, photographer named Barry Shapiro. The book is called A Dangerously Curious Eye: The Edge of San Francisco, 1972 to 1982. Hmm. The photographer who uh, was a, was a, uh, also was a uh, school principal. And uh, you go down to this uh, area of uh, San Francisco called Hunter's Point, which is basically the, the ghetto. And he'd photograph the, the people that lived there, and he got to know them, and he developed friendships with them. And the, the, these photographs were taken the exact same time, the exact same place that I'm trying to recreate. And it, it was, I didn't know that it was called Hunter's Point. I was familiar with Fillmore, but uh, you know Hunter's Point and Point Blanc. I went, wow, this is. Wow, I, I I I had no idea. So it's great because these photographs are are street scenes. They're the way that people dressed. It wasn't uh, 
uh, it's people on the street and in the style that, that they were wearing at the time. You know, they weren't trying to, to dress up or try to look like anything for a movie. This is ordinary life, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to, to capture here. So this was like a treasure trove for me. As soon as I saw it, I ordered it. I've just been flipping through it religiously. So, um, so the, the research is, is definitely very important for me to try to get, create that sense of uh, verisimilitude and then fealty to, to the era, because I, I don't want it to seem like, okay, I got somebody in Afro, so oh, it's obviously the 1970s. No, it's a, it's a little more than that. You know, oh, I got bell bombs. Oh, it's the 1970s. No, I try to Make sure that that every that a lot of the details in there are consistent with the time frame time period, and uh, and it uh, but everything else I think that gives me a little more latitude and, and other things that I, that I do because if you believe the place, if you believe the people, then you're going to be drawn into the story a bit more. Yes, no, no, that that's so true. It it just it makes me makes me wish like I, my parents still had their copies of like Jet and Ebony and Essence from like back in the day. I'd I'd send them to you. <laughs> Black household, probably even today, you can usually find it sitting sitting, sitting in the bathroom or mm-hmm. sitting on a coffee table or underneath the coffee table or something. But yeah, just to see those uh, those advertisements, those uh, those articles, the mindset, um, all that's kind of valuable to kind of inform the work that I'm trying to do. Because you know, I was born around that time, as I date myself, mm-hmm. but. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I don't want to just rely on my own my own memories, which are are flawed. You know, I want to uh, stay true to to, to that to that uh, the, the time and what was going on there, because uh, that that also kind of seeps into the work. Um, the, the story that I'm working on, uh, kind of the, the Black Fist. I, I don't try to get. I leave politics for my Twitter account. If you follow me on Twitter, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to be very political on there. Uh, but I try to leave politics in general out of uh, World of Hurt. But I don't think you can tell an accurate story of black exploitation without kind of dealing with uh, the social and political um, issues that were that were prevalent in the day. So that that, that kind of that, that 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 comes into the work and um, as a, as you. With the Black Fist in particular, as uh, the, the villain of the pieces revealed, you'll kind of see, oh my gosh, that that was going on at the time, and and uh, the villain's motivation even was exactly the same as uh, as well. I won't go any, I won't say anymore, <laughs> but uh, but you, you'll see how it plays out in, in, into the actual history. Going back once again to the strip, though the whole cinematic feel to it as well. We've talked about some artists like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Al Williamson, and um, you know things and people of that nature that were inspirations for you. But cin- cinematically, were there any inspirations like, say, for instance, a Gordon Parks or a, a Melvin Van Peebles that also contributed uh, to the creation of this comic? I loved uh, uh, the work of Gordon Parks, uh, senior and uh, junior. And um, Ivan Ivan Dixon, um, who was uh, played, uh, who was uh, an actor, who was in Hogan's Heroes, uh, directed two kind of under underrated movies at the time. I mentioned Trouble Man before, but also uh, he did uh, he directed The Spook Who Sat by the Door, which I consider was probably one of the most important black exploitation movies that was done. But it uh, but it's hardly ever is was hardly ever seen. I think it only had a week long run and only existed and then continued to, to remain in people's uh, uh consciousness thanks to kind of bootleg copies that were in it that were, were were distributed. But they recently got a full D V D release and I had a chance to see it and I realized why it was why it was off the shelves 
for so long because it uh, I felt like the, the Black Man's Fight Club. Mm. Um, because if you, when you watch it, it's like I'm a pacifist, liberal through and through, but maybe like, yeah, fight the power, man, destroy <laughs> everything. You just wanted to kind of, uh, just wanted to kind of uh, run out in the streets and, and, and change the system around. Uh, because the character in it is, is unlike uh, any just about any other black exploitation character, because he's a very strong, assertive character. But in a way, it's a, he plays it sort of like a um, Clark Kent Superman sort of thing, hmm. where he uh, he's a, he's, a, he's a trained, he's a very intelligent man. Went to college, uh, I think, served in Korea as well, um, and uh, had the opportunity, thanks to. Um, some political uh, machinations to uh, join the CIA as the first black agent. And he get, takes all the training, spurs very quietly, was basically a glorified copy boy for several years, and uses all this, and later leaves the, uh, the, the CIA and uses his, his training um, to basically start a revolution very successfully because he relies on people underestimating him. He's a kind of bookish guy. Uh, he wears a big square glass. He's got a big triangular head, you know. Um, but there's that that steel to his spine that's immediately apparent um, to anybody who who stays around him long enough. Hmm. And um, but he but he kind of plays the fool a little bit, and then makes sure that people kind of underestimate him, so that when things do go down, um, nobody suspects that it's it's him or that even black folks could even pull off something like that. So the speech that's at the but by the doors was. Uh, um, very, uh, if, if you haven't seen it, I definitely, definitely recommend tracking it down um, okay. just for, for what it was it was trying to say um, and, and how well it was done. It was it got a little, I think it had a higher budget than most. I think it might have been through Warner Brothers, possibly, hmm. or uh, uh, one of the larger studios. And uh, But they once they saw what they had on their hands, they got a little scared. And, uh, <laughs> so that's always a good sign of, of good art. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of scares the suits and those in power. <laughs> wow. See, yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to peep that. I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. I, one thing that I will admit, like coming up as a child, like there were some films um, when I was young. Like I was like born in the mid to late '70s. There were some films that my parents would allow me to see when I was like around, you know, seven or eight years old. Because by that time, a lot of these movies ended up on television. You know, late at night, like at the late, late, late movie show or whatever. And so I was able to see Shaft. And I was able to see Shaft in Africa. Um, I was able to see Black Belt Jones, stuff like it's been a while, like Hot Potato. But that's still to like some movies to this day have still like avoided me. And I've been trying to make time to watch them like like Truck Turner, you know, and to this day. I've never I've never seen it. And like I feel I feel that something's missing because I haven't seen it. You know what I mean? I would say if you haven't seen Trump Turner, I think you you are kind of missing something, particularly if you're you're a genre fan, mm-hmm. just to see uh, Nichelle Nichols in a completely different role from Uhura. Um, she's a revelation, and um, I, I called her. I think I named her one of the, the top black exploitation villains of all time. Mm. Just the way she just kind of chews through the scenery, um, but in a, in, a, in a good way, and makes you actually believe this Dorinda character is this hard-nosed foul-mouthed, angry, bitter ex-prostitute turned madam. Mm. Um, and she completely owns the, the, the screen when she's on it. And she, she hangs in there with, uh, with Yafet Koto, who's a tremendous actor. The physicality and, 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 and the booming voice of, of Isaac Hayes, you know, she, she stands down. She, she mm. 
pretty much backs him down. Um, so it's a great movie. It's a, it's a great movie. I definitely recommend you see it. Definitely yeah. to see what what what. Uh, uh, also, a lot of the musical uh, cues and, and songs um, uh, Quentin Tarantino took from it too. Hmm. It's it's just one of those eras, and I think in in cinema that it can that's it, just an era that can't be duplicated ever again I, I, it just can't be because like a lot of these films even when people really started to get hip and then studios actually tried to do their own thing and capitalize off of it the, the fact that a lot of um, black exploitation cinema is built off of independence mm-hmm. and you know it's built off of independence and like you know scrounging up what you can to you know you know scrounging up what you can and making the best film you can best film you can make with what you got and also being innovative at the same time and and you know and no question just like with any form of cinema not all the films are the greatest but there are some that are still to this day you know fantastic and, and stand the test of time so right. that and that's the one thing i think most about this about the genre in itself to me it opened up a ton of venues it opened up a ton of venues and there's still things like you said with uh, tarantino borrowing you know borrowing things from from black exploitation films to this day that are used in conventional cinema that some people don't either say thank you for or or give credit to. Mm-hmm. If anything, the, the music of the time, um, a lot of it's uh, the, the the rappers today. I think during the nineties, um, you had the artists like uh, Tupac and um, even uh, the Boss Effects mm-hmm. who recognized the, the influence of those movies. So you saw uh, music from from that from those movies work their way into. Uh, into their songs, um, sometimes uncredited, sometimes not. But then you, I mean, you have artists like Jay Z taking uh, um, uh, Donny Pate's uh, "Shock in Africa" song and putting it in, and then putting in their music. Um, so it's a, you, you probably wouldn't have modern day hip hop without uh, without the black music of black exploitation films. Yeah. Um, uh, definitely, it was a huge debt to them. I think um, uh, James Brown did some of his, his strongest work. Um, for uh, the uh, uh, Black Caesar, and then it's uh, the the the, uh, the big the payback album uh, was actually started uh, done as the soundtrack for Black Caesar's sequel Hell Up in Harlem. Mm. They decided not to use it, but it ranks today one of his strongest albums. I mean, so much so much from that, um, so much stuff came out of that era. So much stuff came out of those movies yeah. that, uh, like you said, we don't recognize how, how important it is to what we do today. Hey! You got, you got to pay back! Revenge! Going back to the whole soundtrack thing, that was like one of the key, like you said, it's one of the key elements in black exploitation cinema it also became for like a selling point for like the longest time up until I probably say about the nineties. Um, you know, movies in general. I mean, like studios and and a lot of music companies didn't understand the power of a soundtrack, but black exploitation movies did, and yes. and it, and, it, right. and it carried on. And like with a lot of films, I remember in the nine, like especially late eighties, early nineties, because I still have a ton of soundtracks. Like New Jack City. Let's see here, what else? Uh, New Jersey Drive. And granted, some of these films are good. Some of these films are just terrible. <laughs> You know, Mo Money. All these sounds, the soundtracks were awesome. Not all the movies were awesome, but the soundtracks themselves, whether it be the score or the actual just, you know, soundtrack, you know, music inspired by blah, blah, blah. Fantastic. And it, then there was just this cutoff point where, for some reason, studios said, you know what? We're not selling, you know, oh, it went gold. Oh, that's cool. But you know what? That's not enough for us. 
soundtracks are no longer important. I, I don't I don't understand it. To me, there's a place for everything. Sometimes you have to look beyond the numbers. And I know I know the old saying: if it's not making dollars, it's not making any sense. So, but at the same time, I'm like, well, it was it's been successful for almost thirty years. You mean to tell me that nobody wants soundtracks anymore? Mm-hmm. I, I don't get that. I, I really don't. I really don't because I can still play the new. Well, with the exception of two or three songs, I can still play the New Jack City soundtrack, no problems at all. You know, I can go and play. The Shaft soundtrack, you know, no, no issues at all. It just, it just, that kind of bugs me how we just have lost that, you know, the the era of the soundtrack, and which was a pretty long defining time, is pretty much dead. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it actually started with uh, you mentioned music from and inspired by, you know, when it's from the movie and in the movie, you kind of it brings you back to certain points in the movie, like, oh yeah, that was when when I carried the, the tuss and such, or that's when you walked into the bar. But when they're just movies, songs that you know they throw on because they happen to own, uh, you know, part of the record studio or whatever. So okay, we got to put Nickelback on here. <laughs> have them do a song that's tangentially related to to mm-hmm. this, and they put it on there. You know, so it has no connection to the actual film. They right. have no emotional connection with what you've seen and what you're hearing. But when it's actually part of it, you can enjoy it a lot more. Like, oh, yeah, I that. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, see, and that was also it's also a different time as well when radio will allow you to play a five-minute song yeah you know like oh, yeah. and then let's be real the the theme song for shaft that's got an intro and a half <laughs> yeah exactly you know you better sit and wait you know and just enjoy the song as a whole you know radio freaks out about stuff like that right now radio if a song is longer than three minutes they get scared yeah, if, if we had uh, attitudes like that back then, I mean, we would have things like, like you mentioned, the theme of Shaft. Papa was a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a, uh, I go out and have dinner and come back, and they're just starting to sing. <laughs> Papa was a Rolling Stone comes on. Um, but golly, it's a beautiful song. Oh, yes, it's, it's a beautiful it's an incredible song. Incredible song. I, a meaningful song, too. Yes, I love that song. Like, I I blame my uh, my best friend, Chris. God bless his soul. May he rest in peace. He brought it back. He brought it back to me like like a couple of years before he passed away. We were just driving around and he had like a Temptations, um, a, like a central collection. And he and he flipped it to Papa was a Rolling Stone. And he was like, I want you to listen. He said, I just, I, he's like, I don't want you to hear it. He's like, I want you to listen to it. And, you know, and it's just going, it's like layer. The intro is layer after layer after layer after layer of music. And then the soul clap comes in in the background. <laughs> And you know, and I never paid any attention to that. And I'm like, this is fantastic. And then the song finally comes in. And it's just like, it's a whole other world. It's like when you listen to Eddie Kendrick's uh, Keep On Trucking, yeah. that's two songs in one. Mm-hmm. Because the bridge just takes you somewhere and it never comes back. That's sweet. You know, that's and, sweet. And, and, and I love that. And, and like a lot of people have used, oh, God, so many people have used and sampled Keep On Trucking by Eddie, by Eddie Kendrick's. And a lot of people don't understand that. How influential, whether it be you know soul music, black exploitation scores, all this stuff, it has been so influential to all forms of music, even pop music. Even though a lot of these pop artists like hate to admit it, I'm you know it's it's a part it's a part of the culture. You know you can't run from it. You know you just cannot run from it. It's there. It's in there. You know you just you know you gotta hear it. You gotta you know you you hear it, but you don't want to accept it. So, so yeah, man. Bow down before it. Just. You, if without it, you wouldn't have anything. No. No. Yeah. No, no. 
I, I, I agree 100 percent with you on that. Um, but, but let me let me get off my music pulpit for a second because I'm I'm about to hold music church. Um, <laughs> I actually met you at the 2010 Heroes Con. Got to rap rap to you for a bit. You've been to a few conventions, but you were able to go to Atlanta Comic Con or Wizard World Atlanta recently. You got to meet some stars of the black exploitation era uh, at that show. How was that show, and and uh, how did it all work out for you? Did you like it? I I have to put it in two separate categories. Um, <laughs> as far as uh, it was the first year of the convention. So I don't think it's quite figured out its identity and what it, what it wants to be. Plus, it falls under the whole wizard sort of umbrella. So I don't think anybody quite moved to the amount of uh, product or, or have this number of sales that they, they wanted or expected. However, from the standpoint of just meeting people and talking with people, and, um, and, and the black exploitation stars aside, uh, just talking to people who are familiar with the strip or didn't even know anything about the strip, um, for, from that standpoint, it was fantastic because um, I got to reconnect with some uh, some old friends and uh, talk with them for a long time, and, uh, that, and that, that that was great. That was great because it was pretty centrally located. Atlanta um, seems to get to. It was, a, it was a very nice venue. Uh, they did a fantastic job with the volunteers with. Uh, uh, with the amount of space that was available to to our creators, um, I mean, I was and then and how they kind of mixed everybody up. Mm-hmm. That was across the aisle from uh, from Michael Golden. Wow! And uh, where Cat corner from me was was Bill Sinkavich and uh, and David Mack. And then right, but uh, just a couple uh, tables down was uh, was guy was Gaijin Studio. So he had a lot of space and a lot of a lot of mingling with creators. So, so from that, uh, you know, I think as soon as people become more aware of it and as soon as it kind of settles into its own identity and what it wants to be, I think it'll be will be a great great convention all all the way around. But from from that standpoint of meeting all those people and having a great time there. It was great. It was great. I definitely rec- I recommend it from that standpoint. How was meeting uh, Richard Roundtree? It was very, it was a very quick meeting um, because I, I was uh, kind of I was sitting at my, my table and uh, talking to my friend uh, Anthony Summey, who's a great artist in his own right. Um, he's my old uh, college roommate, and he said, uh, and, and he said, is that is that Richard Roundtree? And you know, he's a guy who's wearing a little an Applejack hat, but you know, like a driver's cap and mm-hmm. overcoat. You know, very trim, dark, handsome fella. He said, I think that is. He started walking our way, and I pulled out my little postcard with all the information about the uh, world of hurt on I said, uh, Mr. Roundtree, Mr. Roundtree, big fan of yours. Love your movies. Um, it inspired me to do my, my work comic. If you have a chance, please check it out. He said, okay, thanks. I appreciate it. And he walked on. So, mm-hmm. so I was like, okay, I got in there. Because I knew he was, he was actually targeting for photographs and that, that okay. kind of thing. So, yes. Uh, I wasn't, uh, didn't do that. But the first guy I did see there was, was Fred Williamson, and I, I got his autograph, and I got a picture taken of him. So, so that was nice, and uh, uh, Fred Williamson is—he's uh, a hammer twenty-four-seven, as, uh, as as Dwight from uh, from Sidebar Nation said. Yeah, he's, he's a hammer, you know, <laughs> Raider Cup shine. You know, he, uh, the guy you see in the movies is the guy you pretty much you get. Uh, so he's uh, so he, he, he's a trip. He's a trip, but he's a, he's a pretty solid fella. He's I, solid fella. I had read somewhere that originally Fred Williamson. Had tried out to become to be an announcer for Monday Night Football, and he did a couple of preseason games, 
This is way back when. But for some reason, the network didn't care much for him, so they um, let him go. Um, I had read that somewhere, and I cannot remember where I read that. And and, and that, I want to say this was like, I guess I want to say uh, late 60s or probably late 60s, early 70s when this happened. But um, he got to do a couple of preseason games. And um, he, and he was an analyst. He was an analyst, um, you know, up in the booth. But uh, they, you know, for some reason, either the network or possibly Cosell, who knows, didn't like, didn't care much for him. So they just said, "No, nah, that's okay. Thanks, but no thanks." I could I could see how people could think he was uh, abrasive, but I think that, that sort of character that you see in the movies, Black Caesar, uh, that man Bolt. I think that that character, that guy, is, is actually can be pretty charming. And I don't know what their, 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 their particular issue might, might have been with him as an announcer, but I could see that, that charm kind of coming in, you know, into, into, the, into the booth. Oh, so I could see, like, the ego coming through, like, well, in my day, this is how we would have done it. So I could see that, you know, I could see <laughs> why it might have been an issue there. But, you know, no matter what your dealings with him might be, my mind was, was, was largely positive, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. You, you can't take you can't take what he, away from what he, what he did and continue to do, because I mean, he still kind of realized that he had to take the responsibility and the reins of production, and so he did, you know, he did his own movie well into the 80s and into the 90s, even with the original Gangsters, you know, he produced them and uh, directed a few and, you know, and, and said, you know, I, if, if they kind of left me by the side of the road, I'm going to pick up and just keep on running, you know. So, so you continue to do movies like uh, Black Cobra, and uh, I mean the quality of those you can you know, can be kind of can be kind of iffy and spotty sometimes. But yeah, you know, you put money where his mouth was, and um, you saw people from from that era who were kind of bad mouthed the movies. I was reading an Ebony Magazine article written in the, the height of the black exploitation before even that phrase was even coined, and you know, people were there were there were black leaders who were, were critical of the movies and really kind of misunderstood where they're they're coming from but you know he said well we, we we're going to protest these because you know the money's not going to them to black hands and you know they're, they're not doing the right bias but those same people who are criticizing and one in particular who i won't mention by name but probably all know who he is um you know i looked at imdb and the guy is still out there and still a very vocal presence in the black community, but, you know, he never financed a film. Never. You know, he, if these movies are so bad, put your money where your mouth is and, uh, you know, do something that you think is better. And that, that never happened. I That's re- all I'll say about that. Oh, no, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going to the movie theater to see original gangsters and um it's me and uh, me and chris we went to go see it uh, and this was when a lot of movie when a lot of movie theaters had late shows like the last show could be at twelve thirty at night you know a lot of cinemas don't do that anymore and we had saw the previews and everything for it but like it was you know a lot of our you know childhood heroes together one in one movie so we're like yeah well, let's go check this out and you know what i enjoy that film but my only problem with the movie is that the villain is Braxton from the Jamie Foxx show. <laughs> you, you know, and, and it's, cause as soon as he turned around, he had the do-rag on. As soon as he turned around and started mean-mugging, I, I just started laughing. And, and I didn't mean to. Like, I started laughing, and then Chris started, and Chris started laughing. And, you know, there was nobody else in the theater. So, you know, we were able to enjoy ourselves. But 
it, it automatically took me out of the movie for a minute. I'm like, okay, okay, you know, let the man act. Let it, just let him get it out, get it out. Okay, just let him do his thing. Okay, now let's watch the movie again. And then I started laughing again. <laughs> but and, you know, on a whole, I still had fun. I still enjoyed the movie. I, I had fun. It's kind of like it's the original Expendables. <laughs> in, uh, in a way, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's the original Expendables, you know, with 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 a lower budget, and um, you know, and stuff still gets blown up. Folks still get shot. There's still a story somewhere, and you know, mm-hmm. and, and you just enjoy it, and you take it for what it is. But uh-huh. uh, but yeah, but boy, Braxton as a villain, I'm like, this is not passable. <laughs> well, what I found interesting about that was, uh, I mean, you had because uh, Fred Williams played a number of characters. Uh, and uh, from those movies, and so did Jim Brown and um, Jim Kelly, although he wasn't in the original Gangsters, and then, of course, Pam Grier, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Richard Roundtree was just Shaft, and that was pretty much all he played from that time period. Yes. I and mean, that's all he, I guess, all he needed. And so to see him with those other characters, with other, those other actors, I think it was, it was like a first, because we had seen uh, Three the Hard Way before in Bucktown. Yeah. But, you know, to see, you know, what Shaft is in here, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was. That, that, that part was that was, was kind of neat, and I would think that was the, the big selling point. Oh yeah, most you know, definitely. To have these guys, yeah. And then that that was a selling point for me, you know, just just you know to see you know to see Richard Roundtree, and I remember my my, my friend Chris wanted to see, um, wanted to see Ron O'Neill, and, mm-hmm. and then we get we get to the theater, and he sees Ron O'Neill on the screen, and he's just like, man, he's like Ron O'Neill didn't age well, man. <laughs> I was like, look, I said, I wasn't paying no attention. I was just trying to enjoy the movie. He's like, dude, he did not age well. He's like, we need to go see this again. And just just so I can show you that he didn't age well. I'm like, all right, you need to stop it now. You need to stop it. <laughs> well, he was in the hairpiece he wore during, uh, for, for Superfly. The, the big uh, process wasn't, wasn't his. It was a wig. So, hmm. you know, he, I mean, he, he was still a great actor. And I, I was, uh, I, I was a big fan of, uh, the equal movie, the show, the equalizer. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, I think one of the first descriptions I had for World of Hurt was Superfly meets the Equalizer. Yes. And there's uh, Superfly actually did meet the Equalizer because he had a recurring character. Uh, Ron O'Neill played a recurring character on the Equalizer. So I remember seeing him, uh, and I was just reminded of that when I bought the first season of Box Set. I went, wow, like two icons right there. Yeah, pretty yeah. sweet. <laughs> I know that the Equalizer had one of the coolest theme songs ever. You know, oh, yeah. people still sleep on that show to this day. I that goes down as like one of my favorite '80s TV shows because oh, yeah. you know they never thought that like you know an older gentleman could go and whoop some tail and handle business, mm-hmm. but he he did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, when I saw the movie Taken, I went, you know, equalizer. Oh yeah, they're like, you know what? Let's make the equalizer. Let's mix the equalizer with Jason Bourne and just let him go ape shit. <laughs> I noticed on your Twitter, like on your Twitter posts, you're talking about the Green Lantern trailer, and you had said the best part about the Green Lantern trailer is that when is that when in costume, Ryan Reynolds' hair looks like Gil Kane drew it. I saw the trailer in the movie theater for the first time when I saw Tron Legacy. When I saw the trailer for Green Lantern on my computer. I was like, okay, this this looks pretty good. I, you know, I'm like, it's not bad. It doesn't look too bad. When I saw the trailer in the movie theater on the big screen, it completely changed my mood of that film. It changed my thought, that you know, my initial thoughts of the movie. It was an entirely different 
thing altogether. And it and it was more it was more positive. It wasn't negative. It was more positive. And and it looks like this is a film that's built for the cinema. And we and like I've talked about this with friends. I may have talked about this. You know, I think we talked about this on one, one of our earlier episodes back in September that people a lot of people aren't making you know movies you know movie movies anymore like you know when we used to go to the movies it was an event you know that's no longer the case that's no longer the case now every now and then you're going to get a movie that's an event but for different reasons like with avatar avatar was an event because the technology that was used was you know it was like breathtaking and a breath of fresh air for many people and they had never seen anything like this before plus they 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 cooped a lot of money from from 3d ticket sales so that was an event for for a different reason that was you know super escapism but I'm not saying that Green Lantern isn't super escapism because it is, but just from like a cinematic standpoint, when some when you look at something on a movie screen, and it just makes you go, "Whoa!" Now I'll go see this. I, I will go see this. And initially, I was like, eh, "I'll wait," you know, because the costume when I saw it on, on my computer, it didn't really it didn't really get me excited. You know, you know, I wasn't really too sold on it. But when I saw it all on screen, I'm like, "Okay." On the movie screen, I'm like, "Yeah, I'm going." I'm like, "You got my money first week," you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it really just changed my perception. And I think that's my whole thing when it comes to movies nowadays, how we see things on the Internet and how we see things on TV and how we see things in the cinema should all be different. I think when it when it all plays the same on all on all three uh, venues, I think it lessens the effect of the overall thing you're trying to display to the people. That's pretty pretty powerful. That's I mean, uh, because you you want this sort of. um, I guess mobility across all these different platforms. You want it to all kind of work all together, um, but uh, to, to actually create a product, and to create a film that, to, that's meant to be enjoyed, this big spectacle. Um, I think uh, that that that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I, and, and you're right. It's missing from from today's movies. I mean, it was it used to be in the to movies was an event. Mm-hmm. I mean, even actors uh, saw going to TV as slumming. Yes, uh, but now you know whether you're on Funny or Die or a network TV show or in a, in a motion picture, you know it's all kind of the same on the same thing. Right. Well, because I, I think what what's happened is is that the word media has just absorbed everything, and so and and now people are like, well, as long as somebody sees me or if somebody sees my project, I don't care how they see it, as long as they see it. But sometimes certain things in certain areas have a have a much longer lasting effect yeah. you, you know period i mean I'll, I'll be honest with you look watch go watch star wars a new hope go watch it in a movie theater and don't tell me that the star destroyer coming down the screen is um less powerful than you know, like watching on tv i mean on, on in the movie theater it blows me away on tv i'm like this is cool but in the movie theater on a big screen i'm like whoa yeah. y- you know it, it's completely different to me science fiction is always should always look great in, a, in, in cinema and the problem is is that so many studios and producers are like we got to package it like this sell it like this make sure we can get all these people in the theater so let's make it pg-13 when it shouldn't be it's like you, you know and i'm like you know not everything needs to be pg-13 i do agree there needs to be things for children please please understand that i because i had things but so did adults but it's like you know, it's kind of like making a deadpool movie pg or pg-13 it's a bad look it, 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 you know, it's a bad look. People forget that Matrix was rated R. I, I did. I forgot that too. Yeah. Hey, you're, well, you're right. 
it, it, it was rated R, like one of the first rated R movies to like make like over a hundred million and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Because you know, because even studios knew it's like, well, if we make an R-rated film, there's a good chance you know we won't make X amount of dollars because we can't get kids in it. But the Matrix, like you know, broke that mold. But now we're back at that age where we've got a lot of PG-13 films that when you watch them, it's like, well, something's missing, and you know what's missing. And, and and then when they come out with like a either director's cut or uncut, you're like, oh, this played a, a heck of a lot better than the PG-13 cut. You know, there are films where they can be PG, and they're just telling such a such a story that you don't pay any. You know, you just enjoy the story. Like I enjoy Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy is like rated PG from beginning to end. I was thoroughly pleased because it's a, it's a very artistic film. The story you will either love or hate, but artistically, it's beautiful. And it's built for the big. That film was built for the big screen. I don't know how, how it's going to play on TV. I really don't know. But I, I really give props when somebody can take a, can take an actual movie and sell it to me on a cinema screen that makes me say whoa. Because a lot of people can't do that anymore. And I don't. Yeah. I don't know whether they don't know how to, or or whether they you know or just like the studios are like, look, we got we got this deadline. We got to package it, cut it up, get it out, and ready to go. But I really think it's hurt films. Yeah, I think it's part of the whole homogenization of society where, you know, you're traveling on the highway and every exit has the same restaurants because people know what to expect. It's it's comfortable to them. Uh, But not every movie, um, sometimes the story should demand uh, that it be rated R. You know, and if the story is strong enough, like The Matrix, the first one, (laughs) it'll it'll sustain. People will come back and go, wow, I want to see that. Oh, the kids will sneak into the theater to see that, and I think, uh, you know, I think that's what's kind of missing today. I think people are, are, aren't willing to take chances anymore. Um, it, it all comes down to the bottom line, and, uh, but I mean, to, to take the, the chance and say, okay, we're going to throw in a little sexuality, you know, we're going to throw in uh, a little, little Western violence, we're going to throw in, you know, sort of hard concepts to put to people. Yeah. I think there's kind of a fear of that. Yeah, no, and I and I agree with you. And if it's like, and if people have a fear, have a fear of that, I'm like, well, with like, say, for instance, a movie like Star Wars back then, which cost like ten between ten to fifteen million dollars to make, which then was a lot of money, but now that's pennies to a studio. I'm like, if yeah. you're that concerned, you know, lower the budget, and you know, find and find creative ways to make these movies, and then you'll see that if you make X amount of profit off of this film that you didn't give a big budget to imagine what could happen if you actually gave it a big budget but then again with some studios they see that and they're like well we made x amount of dollars and we didn't invest this much into this film so imagine if we make it pg-13 or pg and give it a bigger budget then we can get everybody in and think of all the toy tie-ins and all this other stuff and i'm like you know sometimes this stuff creates its own additional material on its own you know, when you force it down somebody's throat, nine times out of ten, nobody will dig it. Right. And, and, and you speak about risk of, I mean, that's how black exploitation came about, because mm-hmm. studios were, were desperate for cash. I mean, there are full stories of um, MGM selling uh, Dorothy shoes um, mm. to raise money. And uh, so they said, okay, we're going to, we found, they found, they quote-unquote found this audience, this urban audience that was underserved. Um, discovered that you know with movies like uh, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem and Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song, so they made a lot of money for a very low investment. And they said, okay, we got to get into this. Mm-hmm. So they kind of retooled some of the movies that they had before. Um, uh, according to some sources, Shaft was was originally started with a was supposed to be a white character. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, okay, we can we can make some of this. We can we can 
put these stories out ourselves, you know, and then for relatively small amount of money, they had tremendous returns, and they, they would save the studios, and you kind of saw the same thing with uh, the same sort of uh, uh, pattern repeated itself with uh, those networks like the WB, mm-hmm. um, UPN, Fox, where they first catered to an urban audience to kind of get a foothold or find a market. And then once they established, you know, okay, we're here, we're presence, we're here to stay. They kind of they, they kind of toss those those, those urban shows aside um, uh, for something kind of uh, safe and mm-hmm. uh, and more mainstream, I guess you could say. Yep, and I'm still waiting on my living single finale. <laughs> Never <laughs> happened. I know, I, I know, I know. <laughs> You know, I I, 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 oh, I I know, I know. You know, I I, I just en- I enjoyed that series. You know, I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty it's pretty standard sitcom, and you knew the result of every single episode. But I just remember the like the last episode aired, and I was like, okay, it's kind of like on a cliffhanger. It's kind of not. I'm like, okay, where's my where's my series finale? And it just never happened. It just like disappeared. It's like Fox said, this never existed. <laughs> the show, the forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I love the relationship between Max and uh, uh, Max and TC uh, TC Car- uh, Carter's character. Mm-hmm. I, I thought they were like a modern. They could have been like a modern day Nick and Moore Charles because they had this great chemistry uh, together and had uh, great repartee. And it was it was, it was smart. Yes. It's very smart dialogue between those two. And um, you know that's kind of missing in, in some shows you might see on certain uh, PPS networks. Yeah, uh, where it's just kind of uh, lowest common denominator humor, and uh, you know, well, something was predictable, but I, but but those two characters really stood out as uh, you know very very smart and kind of sexy and, and sassy and fun, mm-hmm. and uh, there was something we we hadn't seen in a long time between uh, it, that sort of interplay between uh, black characters of male and female. Oh, definitely, it it definitely trumps two two seven and, and Amen. So. Uh, <laughs> No, no offense, no offense to those shows because for the longest time they held down NBC Saturday Night <laughs> for, yeah. for like a long time. It's just like that thing you said with like Fox, CW, and WB. They were like, "Well, you know what? We made enough money off of you. We don't need you anymore." And boom, gone. Yeah. Not saying that like those shows were super and great, but if you really think about it, you had a sitcom that talked about living. Not in the suburbs, not the projects, but it was kind of like this middle class. You had a middle class sitcom followed by a sitcom about a church. Yeah, that la- that yeah. lasted for like a for, for years. I mean years. I mean, and and, th- and from that you had like two two seven Amen, Golden Girls, and whatever was after Golden Girls, and it that was like that was gold for NBC for like probably like five or six years. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, like it. I mean, we saw uh, Regina King grow up. Yeah. And, you know, next thing you know, she was in uh, uh, Poetic Justice. Yep. You know, getting beat down by a Tory. <laughs> you know, I, I still laugh to this day when Tupac starts beating up a Tory and then throws his comb over the cliff. <laughs> when he, because, when, like, he beats him up, okay? He, you know, he gets him real good. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm like, that dude deserved that. Then he runs back to the dude, picks up his comb, and, like, throws it off the cliff. And, I mean, it's in the energy he had in throwing that comb, every time I see that, I laugh uncontrollably. Take that. <laughs> <laughs> the extra, it's like extra, you know, extra humiliation because he's always combing out his hair. Yes. And, like, boom, you know, picking out his hair, and then suddenly, 
there's identity went over that cliff. <laughs> I loved it. I I love that scene. Before we close up shop, I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can read A World of Hurt online. So if you could tell the people where they can find you on the Internet and where else they can find you, um, I'm sure they would more than appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You can find World of Hurt, the uh, Internet's number one black exploitation webcomic at worldofhurtonline.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at world. Uh, underscore of underscore hurt, um, where you can get uh, my my uh, ruminations on uh, black exploitation music and liberal politics. Um, you know, sometimes to I'm sure an annoying degree to some. Um, and also, I uh, have a uh, world of hurt uh, fan page on Facebook um, that's about uh, not quite 300 members strong, but I think getting close. And um, uh, so, yeah, that's definitely where you can find me. And current storyline is a Black Fist, but the archives uh, for, the, for, the, for the Black Fist and the previous storylines of uh, Thrill Seekers are readily available on uh, worldofhurtonline.com. A lot of uh, interesting thing co- things coming up uh, soon. Like I said, we have the, the car chase going on right now, and um, I'll be introducing a new character very soon who uh, you'll hear here first is uh, going to probably be like the uh, Boba Fett. Of uh, a world of hurt. Oh, nice. Um, where, where he's a character kind of man. He was like I, he, uh, I, I, I have to be very careful about how I write him mm-hmm. so I can see how he can become more popular than, than Pastor. No, um, I, I understand. No, I, I do trust me. That's like a mouse on a devil in a blue dress. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Don Cheadle was a revelation in that. Sure was. Sure. Best uh, best part of that whole movie was mouse. Yes. So he says, uh, he comes back to the guy's dad. He said, if you didn't want to kill him, dad, you shouldn't have left him with me. It's like, that's where that guy is coming from, where he's just that mm-hmm. insane, but then completely aware of his insanity and, and how unstable <laughs> it, uh, he is. So, golly, I love that. I love that character. Oh, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Well, Jay, I, I can't say thanks enough for being on the show. Uh, this has been this has been fantastic. You done got me all hyped up. I'm about to go pull out all my soundtracks, and you know I'm going to try to find a copy of Truck Turner, and uh, I'm going to continue to spread the uh, spread the word of World of Hurt online. And um, I'm hoping to see you um, at a convention. Yes, um, uh, I'm creating my my list in, uh, right now. I understand. I, I understand. Once you get there, once you get there, the show's a great time. I love that show. It's, it's always been good to me and the people, you know, that I surround myself with. And, um, you know, it's always a good time. So if, if you can get there, um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely uh, make sure that you have a good time. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out the logistics of it because it involves an airplane trip and probably a rental car. Yeah, so, yeah, that that's that's the that's the only thing. There's no easy way to get to Reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, cool. You can definitely catch me at the Heroes Con uh, this year, and I'll probably be at Ekdoc uh, as well in Philadelphia. I'm going to look at a couple more other shows. Awesome. Well, continued best to you, Jay. You know, we hope to have you back on the show sometime in the near future. Thank you. I appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you so much. 
Well, I've been trying to catch up on my trade reading. Um, let me start at the top of the pile here. This is Loaded Bible Book One, the Jesus versus Vampire Gospels. Mm-hmm. And this this was written by Tim Seeley, based on a concept by Tim and Steve Seeley. Uh, the artists were Mark Engel, Engelert, 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 Mike Norton, okay. Nate Belgardi, Ben Glending, and Christopher Johnson. And basically, this is a post-apocalyptic tale. Of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? It's the year, let me see, where is it? It's the year, I think, 2049. And the Earth done blew itself up by nuclear war. All the ash and whatnot has been blocking out the sunlight and stuff. So vampires came out. And they just started messing up people. But all these religious rulers started a new city called New Vatican and it's under a big dome and all the vampires are there to and Jesus came and he's killing all the vampires with his army the archangels so you go through the book and it's pretty cool and you see Jesus is literally in battle armor with a sword just just kicking ass (laughs) and then Lilith who is the first vampire yes uh, is drawn kind of like an ape well, she, I guess she's like the least. So she, she, um, she's kind of sick of the Vatican City because uh, they're kind of, you know, do as I say type of people, all right. and it's all ruled by like a, a tribe. Uh, I guess a council of bishops and stuff. And Las Vegas, which I thought was awesome, is is like the vampire uh, city. And uh, so they're having a, a big meeting with like some of the originals, like all of Lilith's children. And they want to mess with Vatican City. So what they did was um, they basically sent one of her kids, this hot little vampire chick, to surrender. And she surrendered to get closer to Jesus so she could tell Jesus the truth. And the truth is the reason why when he meditates he can't listen to his father, a.k.a. God, he can't hear him talk. Because he's a clone. They cloned Jesus, dude. <laughs> From the, sh- you know how he when when Jesus died and he he was wrapped in the shroud. Yes. They used the DNA from the shroud, dude, and cloned Jesus. Uh, so Jesus goes out on this little routine thing there, and and the chick tells him what's going on, and he 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 doesn't believe it at first, and then she shows him in the place, dude. There is literally a shit ton of clone thingies filled with other bald Jesuses. So he starts to have this thing for this vampire chick, but then he finds out like he was going out on this routine thing and he kills a human girl by accident because there's this other group of humans that don't want to listen to the church, so they live out on their own. And and she came out of the dark. He thought it was a vampire and killed her, so now he feels bad and stuff. And then the other vampires capture Lilith to take over and uh, he winds up helping the chick that he likes uh, rescue her. At the end of it, he's going after his human father, which is one of the bishops. Hmm. And that's how book one ends. Pretty nuts. It's worth it. Like, it's it's 17 bucks, but if you like weirdo stuff like that, mm-hmm. it's definitely worth it. Or if you find it at a con or something, pick it up. It's some of Mr. Seeley's early work 
for you or Sealy uh, fans out there. There's also is that some early Mike Norton work in there too? Yes. Yep. Very cool. talk about my grandparents are secret agents <laughs> the, the title says it all my grandparents are secret agents what else do you need to know and, it's, and it starts off with these uh, two grandparents taking down some bad guys and then they gotta go go back home and uh, spend some time with the grandkids because the grandkid the grandkids parents are going away on vacation and in the midst of this vacation they get you know have to get sent out on a special mission that they can't do because they got to spend time with the kids and and the thing is, is that what's funny, okay, here's the thing. The name of the organization that the grandparents work for is called Social Security. Stop it. <laughs> I'm serious. They work for an organization called Social Security. What ends, wow. up, what ends up happening is, is that the kids have to, uh, you know, come along with the grandparents and the organization's cool with it. And they get like this robo dog to come help them out and take and take out this um this bad guy who like goes back in time to like get like the '60s ray gun to like turn everything into like purple haze and, and like you know peace signs and flowers and all this stuff. It, dude, it's funny, man. It, it's funny. It's it's a hundred. It's it's a hundred pages. It's 104 pages, and it's a quick read. It's got like this animation slash like anime. It's like part anime, part regular animation um, as far as like conventional storytelling goes. And there's, it's not that heavy. It's not. But it's that book that if I was a kid in like fifth or sixth grade that went to, like when your classroom went to the library once a week to, uh, to get that library book you wanted, right. that would be the book I would have checked out for like five or six weeks in a row. <laughs> but what's funny is about, about the grandparents, especially Grandpa. Grandpa is a super secret agent and like his toupee is a bomb. He could tear off his toupee and attach it to something like C4 and it'll blow up stuff. And, you know, and then he gets and he has these super teeth that can do all types of things. But after the end of, like, all these special and dangerous missions, like, when he's got, like, the grandparent, like, when he's got, like, his grandkids in the car and grandma's in the passenger side, he's hunched over, like, like you know, like, like an old man hunched over driving 10 miles under the speed limit. <laughs> it, it's that stuff that cracks me up, man. It is, it's just fun. It is so much fun. And like I said, I got, see how much did I pay for this? I got this, I think, like at 75% off, I think. So, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I underpaid for this book. This book retailed for 12 and I know I bought it for, I think, like 3 bucks. Oh, wow. That's a good deal. Because it was, it was on sale. They had, like, all this stuff in clearance, and I got it in clearance. And, yeah, dude, it, it was funny. It kind of reminds me of one of those, like, you know, Nickelodeon cartoons that might pop up every now and then. I really liked it, though. It's, it's an all-ages book, probably more for kids than adults, but if you just want to go back and just have a funny little laugh, this I think this book would be good for you. If you want some kids to read some comics, yo, find them a copy of My Grandparents Are Secret Agents. If you got some little kids that want to read something, let them read this. They will dig it. It's awesome, man. It's, that, that, that sounds like it's fun on, like, two levels. You know, for for kids and for adults, like a kid probably wouldn't get the reference of 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 uh you know the grandfather driving ten miles under the speed limit. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. a parent reading it to a child would get it in a heartbeat. You know? Yo, yeah, definitely. Like, that's awesome. Basically, Buffy the Vampire Slayer 
Volume 6, Retreat, is all the factions of Slayers are, in fact, retreating. And they're going to Tibet to find Oz. Oz the character, not like Oz the Wizard of Oz. Okay. <laughs> I'd say I'm like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Okay, go ahead. Because Oz went to Tibet to learn how to control his werewolf side. And what happens is he f- they find out that the un- the underlining villain of Buffy Season 8 is this this person which has been spilled out on the interwebs, who it is, which ticked me off because I'm reading it in trade. So I don't. I'm so I know who it is, but now I don't. It it is kind of spoiling the book for me now, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, everybody knows. I'm not. I'm still not going to tell you. <laughs> but it's it, the the name of the villain is Twilight, and how he's tracking all the slayers and stuff is through magic. Every time the slayers are magic, and every time the witches use magic, they're able to find them. And so they go to Tibet, and Oz helps them like learn this weird kind of meditation thing where they're giving the magic back to the earth and yada 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 well that's all fine and dandy but it was a little too late he already knew twilight knew where they were and he went after and he he got like the government up against the slayers and stuff but this is earlier volumes and so there's like a full-scale war of unpowered slayers against soldiers and then they asked the gods they were given the, the the gods of the earth that they were given the power to to help them in the war and they come out but the thing of it is is the gods haven't been on the earth in so long they just started whooping everybody's ass right right and then basically everybody retreats but buffy has her slayers out there saying you know get everybody the soldiers everybody anybody anybody that's hurt bring them back here so we can help them blah 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 and willow and buffy and and xander they all jump in a jeep man they go and they grab this one soldier and they bring it back and who is it? The worst damn character in the entire fucking Buffy universe. Who do you think it is? Um, Most lamest dude ever in the Buffy universe. Oh, I don't know, man. You got to tell me. Riley. No, not him. Yeah, well, it turns out he's her secret spy in the fucking army or whatever. <laughs> and I was just like, all right. I hate Riley. I hate that dude. You want to see if people out there, you want to see what, what acting with acting <laughs> When the, when the two leads have no chemistry, yeah, watch that season that Riley was on Buffy. And they were <laughs> supposed to be in love. It got to the point where the director is like, just kiss her. Because yeah. it's better that way. We don't hear you talking. Yeah, I, I wasn't a big Riley fan either. No. So he turns and he's there. And, and, and you know, it's, it's kind of cool. You know, they find out, like, Oz is married with a kid and stuff like that. And in Tibet and things. And, you know, it's basically... I think it's four or five issues. And what they do is they give you four or five issues from the season eight storyline. And then in the back, they give you like these two one page shots from like Dark Horse Presents from back in the day. Oh, that's and cool. There's like a sketch gallery and a cover gallery and things like that. So, like, one story, the first story was like Harmony going out trying to get a talk show. Mm. And then the, the second one, is Buffy talking to that? Remember that preacher from the last season, Nathan Fillion's dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a little story with him, a two pager where he's he's kind of just messing with her mind. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, I I've liked it so far, but I, I do have to say this is the the lamest of the. With my Riley, bias aside, this kind of was like just progressing the story. Hmm. The whole volume was really like there was no. High, low point, you didn't really read it and go, oh, s- snap. You know, like if, if Riley was the big reveal, then, you, you know. It was just like, I'm, I'm, it's just, it's there. 
and that's pretty right. much it. Okay. Right. You're like, oh, I can't wait to happen. See what happens next. Pretty much because you want to find out what happens. And this was basically the four uh, lame episodes in the uh, four or five lame episodes in this in the series. <laughs> Filler episodes, basically. You know, it's kind of like, how do we get Oz in here? Oh, okay, we could do this. You know what I mean? I, every time I see Oz's character on Buffy, I, I automatically call him Seth Green. Yeah, yeah, right. And it, but nobody else. I do. I, I I don't do any other character like that. No, I do no other character like that. Like Buffy, Willow, Xander, all the other characters. I don't call them. You know, I don't call them by their. You know, their real name. Oz shows up. Oh, Seth, oh, Seth Green just came in. <laughs> like, why do I do that? Because I, I I know like the wife and I are watching season one of Veronica Mars and Allison Hannigan's on there. She plays like one of the rich dudes sisters or stepsister or something and I was like oh, Willow's in this episode <laughs> now why you gotta bring up old shit because that's an awful What's, movie what are you talking about Masters of the Universe is an awful film and I'm telling you why first if you don't have the money to do a film Based in Eternia, you only got enough money for two sets, okay? I'm like two otherworldly type sets. You don't need to do the fucking movie, okay? You don't. I'm, dude, it's, it's, I'm going back to the Smurfs again. Once you set something fantastic in modern time, you have literally fucked the movie from the, just from the start, okay? It's awful. I, yeah, I, I'm cool with not having to have Prince Adam, okay? Dolph Lundgren is He-Man. I'm down with that. That's cool. Yeah, he didn't look like the cartoon. He didn't look like the toy. I'm cool with that, all right? But Skeletor looked terrible, okay? Scare, you know, he looked awful. Skeletor looked awful. They sent him to Earth just so like they could find some of this, like, this magical Casio keyboard that could open up another dimension. Courtney Cox is in it. It's awful. And then, like, when they all get ported back to, like, this, like, attorney or, or whatever was attorney and, like, and um, Skeletor are taking shit over. But, like, they took some of, like, I guess that spot where they were on the planet Earth with them. So, like, you get, like, a brick wall and half a cop car. And, and then, like, you got that police chief that comes out nowhere with a shotgun starting to shoot people. It's the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my entire life. It was dumb when I was a kid and it's still bad. And, look, you know me. I love old school shit. I love it. I hated this movie as a child. I, it was on Encore two weeks ago. My wife and I tried to watch it. I got through 30 minutes. I'm like, this is the dumbest shit i ever seen in my entire life. Who greenlit this? Who? It's bad. And there's some things I'm willing to like say, you know what? It was for its time. And I understand why it was meant that way. No. No, man. Somebody snorted way too much cocaine and said, you know what? We can make this for $10. And I'm going to show you how. And it's awful. And I done made you mad. I done hurt your feelings. You didn't hurt my feelings. Maybe <laughs> Dolph Lundgren's feelings, but you didn't hurt my feelings. Okay, here we go. Uh, Walking Dead Volume 12. A lot of stuff happened and a lot of stuff didn't happen. Basically, they were found. They're on their way to Washington, D.C. They found out the guy that was bringing them to Washington, D.C. is a liar. So now they have, like, nowhere to go. Everything he said that was going on in Washington, D.C. was a lie. So he has no idea. And and one of the guys brought this dude from California all the way across to Washington, D.C. because he said that he worked for the government. So then they were found by another, people who, who, uh, another group of people who brought them in 
and they literally have like three blocks of houses and stuff that are all like walled in and it's like an it's like nothing ever happened in those three blocks so now you have like the tension of can they trust them can't they trust them should i let my guard down should i not let my guard down yeah it was it was okay it as usual walking dead is a fast read but nothing really exciting happened this book i just finished and i love this book and it was cinderella from fable town with love if you're a fan of fables and you like spy stories, then this is it right here. This is it right here. You, this was excellently written. The art was fantastic. And you know what I like about fables? They get these artists that, you know, even like in Jack of Fables and in this, it's not jarring. The characters look like they do from the original Fables series. So very cool. It And it is Cinderella, and she has teamed up with... Uh, Aladdin, and she goes on a mission to do things. Well, well, you know the basis of it. She's going to, to find out why all of a sudden, like, all these magical fable items are showing up in the Mundy world. And, you know, and it's a risk of, that, of, of, of the fables being exposed in the world. So they sent her to check it out, and uh, Aladdin was sent to do the same thing from... Oh, crap. Who was... All the Middle Eastern legends. I can't remember who's their who's their leader. Well, anyway, he sent Aladdin to go do that. Okay. I can't remember his name. That sucks. <laughs> as soon as I hang up, I'm gonna go son of a bitch and remember. <laughs> but I I really recommend this, and it takes you. The story goes all the way to the back page, and it was fantastic. Now these two next two books, I'm gonna talk about Area Ten. Which is a, uh, this is the Vertigo mystery crime. It's about a cop that's going after the serial killer called Henry VIII, who leaves a trail of decapitated corpses. Okay, and this guy has lost, you know, it's the usual thing. He lost his, his wife and, and, and everything and, 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 uh, uh, through divorce, and it's the, the usual cop lives for his work type of thing and yada yada. And he gets a freak accident, dude. He gets into a freak accident where a dude drives a spike in his head. Mm. And he lives. What? Yes. And it, and it starts talking about uh, an ancient art of trepidation where people think that by drilling holes in your skull, you can achieve enlightenment. That, now, that is, that is insane. But, dude, I'm telling you right now, this was... I know people have been pooping on the Vertigo crime. Mm-hmm. This book was fantastic. Really? It really was. It was a page turner. I started it and I, and I didn't put it down until I finished it. It's like seriously, all the other ones I'm kind of the the one that Brian Azzarello did was good, the first one, and the then they did one a Hellblazer story, and that was pretty good. Then there was like two in the middle there that just were or three actually in the middle that, that were not too hot at all. And then this one came along and I was like, wow. And then the executor came along, which was crazy, dude. <laughs> what happened? This should be a movie. I'm not even lying. There's this dude. He used to play hockey in L.A. He was from a, a town on the East Coast, right? He gets a phone call. Now, he used to play hockey. He hurt his leg or whatever, right? So he's he's been out of it. But he hurt... Right, so he gets a phone call, and 
he has to go back to his hometown because he's been made his high school girlfriend. He's been made her executor of her will. So he goes back. There's like an Indian reservation off of the town and stuff. And dude, let me just tell you something. This this book has everything. Murder cover-ups, dude. Uh, uh, Indians smuggling crooked cops. A child pornography ring. Anything, dude, this was like... This is like if they just let Law and Order just go asshole crazy. <laughs> but it was good. I mean, this shit was compelling, man. Honest to God. I liked it a lot. Dude, this is what I did with this book. I started reading it. I got about halfway through. Turn off the light to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I laid there for about 10, 15 minutes. Turn that light right back on and finish this book. I, I, was, I was fighting sleep to finish this thing, man. <laughs> but I would really recommend this. If you see this, just jump on it, dude. Mm-hmm. Seriously. If 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 uh, especially if you find it at a con in a discount bin or whatever, because I have a feeling, in all honesty, I don't think the Vertigo crime line is doing too well. Uh, it's still alive, but I don't. They're not releasing them like they were. You know, they were shooting out one a month. I don't think they're doing that anymore. So that's that's that. Uh, I ran through that shit. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our forum, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steelbots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. kid down the street from me had nintendo we used to fuck up some nintendo too so i mean like you know <laughs> oh, we used no, to play the old school wrestling game dude with star man oh you're not talking about muscle are you no i think it was just called nintendo wrestling, wrestling. okay all right yeah because they had a lot of generic titles i just remember there used to be like these little figures you could collect called muscle i remember those. <laughs> Because, like, oh, I was so into those when those came out, dude. I was so into those. And then they had a, an actual wrestling game for Nintendo that my cousin Marty had. Dude, I played a port of that a couple weeks ago. That is the worst fucking wrestling game ever. Yeah, it is bad. But when I was a kid, that was the greatest thing in the world, especially when that little energy ball would, like, come out in the middle of the ring. You grab it, and then you could be super fast and body slam folks. <laughs> Yeah, man. Yeah, that game was awful. So, no.